Passion pulls up. Alamon rejects it. Big time block, Julie Alamon. Elderbrink goes behind her back, puts it up. Big time shot. She nailed it. Kete. Behind the back to Burani, what a pass! You are listening to the Women's Basketball Worldwide Podcast. Welcome in to the Women's Basketball Worldwide Podcast. Carlin Gay alongside Natalia Melendez and Paul Nielsen. And we are pleased to be joined by a man who has won a Division III NCAA National Championship, two-time WNBA champion, uh, also coach of the year in the WNBA, and we can't forget that he also won championships in the ABL. I'm sure we'll get to that as well, Mr. Brian Agler. Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it was, uh, I believe, it was your your GM of the uh, Dallas Wings that said uh, we are lucky uh, that you kind of got were available to to be scooped up by the Wings at the time you were scooped up. We feel incredibly lucky to have you on the podcast today. Um, first, I guess we'll, let's get into it. We we are less than a week away now from the first ever pro virtual draft in uh, in North America. Uh, you're going to be a part of it with the uh, with the Dallas Wings. You guys have four of the top nine picks in the WNBA draft. Um, how weird has it been to try and prepare it under these circumstances? You know, uh, a couple of things. Number one, everybody is sort of uh, being disciplined with their social distancing and their self-quarantining. So along with our draft this weekend, the NFL, the National Football League, is going to have their draft the following weekend, and they're doing the same thing. Everybody's in, sort of in their homes and going to do it virtually through the computer, through Zoom, through telephone, through multiple things. But we're looking forward to it now. In regards to us being ready, I feel very prepared uh, for the draft. We did a lot of our work early, even though that some of the conference basketball tournaments here, the college conference basketball tournaments were canceled. We did a lot of our work early, and so we felt and feel right now very good about our preparation going into it. Just just off the back of that, just off the back of that, Brian, when when it's coming up to uh, to obviously to the draft. Do you look back on and learn from the drafts that you've been involved with in the past? I mean, is that something, I mean, obviously everything in life, we get things right, we get things wrong. Is that something that you reflect on the past draft? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think every time you go through something, whether it's a positive or negative, you know, you draw on that experience. And so as we prepare, you know, we talk about a lot of things that, okay, here's the traits that really transfer from the college level to the WNBA level and here's some of the traits that really don't so we p- try to pay attention to all those things um, but like you said Paul you, you sort of draw on your past experiences and uh, you know just try to add all those things together in our decision make- making process who, who, Coach um, sorry uh, Coach what, what, what kind of player are you looking are you going to be looking at in this draft well, that's a good question. We, uh, you know, we've got four of the top nine picks at this moment. Obviously, we're in communication with the several, with several teams about uh, potential trades. We would, I think, in a lot of ways, would like to condense that down to three picks if we could, or maybe two. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, you can do that multiple ways. But we're open to a lot of dialogue in regards to who we're looking for. You know, we could use help in a lot of areas. We've got a really young team, and we're not going to become much older after this draft either. So we're going to, we feel like we're going to help ourselves talent-wise, mm-hmm. uh, but we're still going to be a young team in regards to experience on the floor. We, we, we need, you know, playmakers is what we need. We've got a couple of really good players. Uh, one that played for us last year in Arike. Agumba Wale, and then we have another player who will be playing the point guard for us this year, Mariah Jefferson, who has been in the league a couple of years. She sat out last year. We acquired her in a trade from Vegas when we moved uh, Liz Cambridge there. 
Uh, you know, she played at UConn, won four national championships. So we're extremely high on Mariah. But we just need to keep adding talent to our roster and uh, let these players work together and mature together. And down, down the years, Coach, um, who, who, who's been your best draft pick, do you think? Well, it's hard to go against uh, Enrique, you know, a year ago. I felt like going in the draft, she was possibly the best player in the draft. We had the fifth pick. We didn't think she would get there, and she did. So that was a no-brainer. You know, sometimes people think you make great decisions, but, you know, our evaluation was done way ahead of there, way ahead of the draft. We just didn't think she was going to be there, and she happened to drop right in our lap. So, you know, she was third in the league in scoring as a rookie. She averaged 19 points a game last year, really matured. She had a string of games. I think four or five of her last six games were 30-plus points. And, you know, we had some good wins even in games that she scored that much. So um, I don't think there's any question that's probably um, as good a draft pick as I've been involved in. And I guess I guess she returns back uh, when you guys eventually get underway. I guess she she's probably got even more of a hardened edge, having gone overseas, rookie season in Euro Cup women. She played in she played in Turkey for Oman Gençlik. She did pretty well. So I guess having that overseas view, bit different basketball. That's that's certainly going to help her intelligence on the court. Oh, there's no question. I I've always thought, especially young players. If they go to Europe and get experience playing, they get a chance to play for different coaches. They get a chance to play with different teammates. They get a chance to experience different cultures. It's just a maturing process, and I think it always helps and benefits how they play on the court. Um, you know, they play in different environments. They travel the world, so they're they come back and they're a little bit more grown up. Now, once they get older unless they're making great money in, in Europe, it's, it may be beneficial from the WNBA perspective that they don't go and just rest. But when you're young and, you know, you're in your 20s, you know, it's a great experience. And I think it's a benefit across the board for these young players. When you, when you look at that, it's, it's, kind of, uh, it's kind of a unique scenario to, to be in with, uh, with the ability to have some of your young players play overseas in a full season overseas where other leagues are heading into the offseason and our kind of players are kind of left to their own devices to figure out how to get better. Um, do you communicate with your players and do you put them in a situation and say, this is the type of things I would like to see you work on while you're over there? Yeah, when we uh, finish our season, we have exit interviews with all of our players. and We talk in detail about areas of growth that they can make. And then we stay in contact and monitor how they're playing overseas. And we had, you know, we had players all over. We had, you know, players in Europe. We had people, we had one player in Korea. China, Australia, so they're playing all over. But, you know, you, you guys, you know, do a great job of following and, and, and promoting women's basketball around the world for the people around the world. And it's just uh, we pay attention to you guys and how everybody's doing. Just just on, on that topic, Brian, um, one thing that popped into my head, I don't know if you saw um, – Last week, the end of last week, the new FIBA calendar was issued. Um, obviously, in the wake of the Tokyo Olympics um, being put back till till next year, um, and off the back of that, what it means is is that European players are going to have to play at the FIBA Women's EuroBasket in June, into July, and then pretty much hop straight to to um, Tokyo. Um, and, and what struck me was that the Europeans, obviously, in the the past few years, have really made some good good contributions. I mean, obviously, you had Emma Messerman last year getting that uh, getting that championship, and obviously the personal accolades. But for me, it looks like it's going to be pretty much impossible next year uh, for Europeans to make any kind of meaningful contribution. And for me, that's a bit of a pity because. I think one of the selling points of obviously if you're the best league in the world, you want the best players regardless of what stamp they have in their passport. So I guess that's going to cause a little bit of an issue next year for those those teams who do rely on some some European players. Yes, it could be. You know, the, I'll be honest with you. I, 
Paul, I think you're probably well aware of this, that the two uh, WNBA championship teams that I've coached, the one in Seattle in 2010, the one in L.A. in 2016, had a heavy flavor of European players on those rosters. So I, I like the maturity uh, and the professionalism and the skill level that many players uh, from Europe bring to the WNBA. And so this year, I mean, depending on how we go in the second pick in the draft, there's a good chance it could be a, a European player. Obviously, uh, we have a stew now on the, who's on the Spanish national team. And so I like that balance and diversity on a basketball roster of the WNBA to have quality teams. Now, to answer your question, every other year, you know, with Eurobasket, there's always going to be people missing time. And uh, obviously a lot depends on the quality of their of the European national team. Um, now, in regards to the Olympics, the, our whole league, the WNBA does shut down for almost a month, maybe a little bit more than a month, for the USA players to practice and prepare for the Olympics. So during the Olympic Games, um, a week before and a, you know, a couple of days after, we will shut our league down so all these players can go play with their national team. So even though that there's, it looks like a heavy schedule for the European players next year, it will probably work out to be pretty much the same if they are willing to and are allowed to come back to the States between Eurobasket and the Olympics. Hmm. Coach, um, how has women's basketball evolved on court? And, and what is holding it back from being even bigger? Well, I don't think there's any question that the game's become more worldly. I mean, many, many uh, countries have their national leagues. They... The teams are getting better. The skill level is getting better. Just to here in the United States, what I can tell over the last 20 or 30 years is just the improvement of the athleticism of the game. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just incredible the quality of athletes that are playing the game right now. So that's where I sort of see it's evolved. I think, you know, across the board, the players are getting better. The coaching is getting better. Mm -hmm. There's more visibility for the game around the world. and um, That's all a positive I think, you know, if you look at our growth uh, in 20-plus years compared to the NBA's first 20-plus years, it's very similar. Yeah, I and agree. In, in fact, uh, you know, we're, we might be a little bit ahead of, mm -hmm. of where they were. I mean, we're getting several of our uh, games televised nationally. You know, the, the draft on Friday night um, is going to be on ESPN. And, you know, with so many things not available to be watched, there's going to be probably a lot of attention given to our draft across the board with sports fans here in the United States and around the world. So it could be a positive for us. Uh, but I do think uh, with the new CBA, uh, things got better, I believe, for everybody involved. And uh, I still think that uh, this – the sport of women's basketball in the United States at the professional level uh, has a really high ceiling of where it can grow to. You mentioned the new CBA. I, I do want to, to uh, get your thoughts on that because it, was, uh, it wasn't it was set in stone that it was going to be an easy conversation to be had between the players and, uh, and, the, and the league, and, and it worked out in the end, and, and, and I believe most are happy with what was done. Uh, from your perspective as a coach, um, Kind of what what uh, what do you take out of what's happened between uh, I guess in the boardroom and not off the court and how is it going to help uh, the on court product? Well, I think it got done because of leadership on both sides, um, and I it got done earlier than maybe even what people thought it was going to be. I thought you know, many people thought it'd go down to the wire, but it got down. It, it was concluded much earlier. Uh, Kathy Engelbert, our new commissioners. Tremendous leader. I can, I you know, just being on conference calls and in meetings with her. You know, she's she's uh, an exceptional leader, great communicator, and I know that she it was meaningful for her to get this done. And then I've been around and know two of the 
leaders on the player side in regards to Neko Gumake and Sue Burford. And those two are tremendous leaders. And they have a way of communicating uh, to get their points across without, you know, without offending people. You know, they, they can sit down and have an educational conversation and, uh, and things get discussed and things get worked out. And so I attribute you know, the new CBA to just great leadership on both sides of the aisle. Can I just flick back to something, sorry, the, the, the previous topic, Brian, just something that popped into my head was, <clears throat> you know, I, I hear from everybody and particularly, obviously, people like yourselves who are working at the top level of the game about how women's basketball has evolved. Obviously, I agree with the notion that the athleticism is unprecedented. It's taken the game to new heights in certain areas. But those who know me know that I've got to be my bonnet that we have to make sure that that's not at the expense of skill levels. So obviously some things, you know, if you're doing it quicker, harder, faster, and you can do it, that's great. Um, but, you know, we've spoken before on this podcast about the art of shooting, and I truly think it is an art, um, not just a skill. Um, is that something that you've seen over the years, that maybe it is going or, or could be in danger of going too far down the power and athleticism route? I do, but I think that if you look at it, sort of what we paid attention to with our roster, um, you know, in the off season, uh, well, of course we had Carly Samuelson playing for us a year ago at the end of the season. We traded for her sister, Katie Lou Samuelson. And then, uh, we also traded for, um, Marina Mayberg. So those three are quality perimeter shooters that we've added to our roster. So, uh, the way the game is going, you have to have a great balance of athleticism and you have to have the, 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 the counter to that as a skill level. Now, if you get people that have both, now you've got potential superstars. Yeah. So, you know, without question, you, you have to have people that can, that can uh, put the ball in the basket on the perimeter for a variety of reasons. One, you know, you have three-point shooting that is, enhances your ability to put points on the scoreboard, but it also spaces the floor so your penetrators and your post game and your your the way you want to operate around the rim is enhanced because there's more space to work with. When you're when you're building a, a roster, I was I was actually looking at doing a little bit of research on on uh, you know the team that you were able to win with in, in LA. When when you got there uh, they were playing a little bit of a faster pace, and then you had them, you know, a little bit slower. And, and uh, in terms of pace, in regards to the rest of the league and a top three defensive team in the last three years there. Um, and last season, you know, Dallas was a team that was in the top three in pace for uh, a couple of years after they got over from Tulsa. And last year, you slowed them down a bit. Um, is that something that uh, you're you're kind of looking to do? Is that the, the style that you would like to coach? Is defense first and uh, kind of pick your spots where you have them, or is that is because the game is evolving, something that you have to evolve with and kind of change the way that you uh, you coach or won in the past? Well, I'm, I'm I'd have to consider myself, you know, somebody that pays attention uh, to the defensive end quite a bit. I think you have to have the ability, especially when you get late in the year into the playoffs, you have to have the ability to defend. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that's just the way it is. Championship teams are going to be usually going to be quality defensive teams. At the same time, championship teams are going to be really good offensively. They're going to be efficient. They're going to be uh, the ability to score from different levels on the floor. Last year had a lot to do more with what I considered our talent level compared to other people in the league. You know, if you remember, we had several people that didn't play Mariah Jefferson. Skyler Diggins, we, they traded Liz Cambridge, um, uh, uh, Taylor Hill, and we had other people that were out for periods of time. So we just didn't have the firepower that they had in the past. So, you know, for us to have the ability to stay in games and win games, we had to try to be great defensively. We had to try to eliminate the amount of possessions and make people play a little bit more uncomfortable than what they were used to playing. Coach, it was you or your son that played professionally in England. I think it was I did. you, right? I did. I played you did. <laughs> back in uh, 1980, 81 in Blackpool. 
Good lad, good lad, Brian. Good lad, Brian. <laughs> I had a great, I had a great time too. I really enjoyed my experience. Great, great fish and chips. Great fish and chips and black food. That's right. You're doing amazing in the in the WNBA. Your resume, it's it's impressive. But do you see yourself maybe in the future? I don't know, ten years from now, maybe like going to Europe and having the experience of coaching. In, in other countries outside the US. Hey Brian, 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 yeah. maybe if Blackpool got a Euroleague women team that would be perfect for you. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. You love those fish and chips and donkey rides so on, on a day off so and all those little small casinos. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Of course the win the wind's blowing about 40 mile an hour in the wintertime, and it's, you know, 35 that's, degrees. It's not the most comfortable, but... That's very true. It's entertaining as long as you stay inside. <laughs> to answer your question, I've always had a great desire to, at some point in my career to coach in Europe or overseas, and uh, I've talked to a few people about it, whether it be teams or, um, you know, agents or general managers, whoever. Um, it's not the easiest to do uh, in regards to how you balance that out with the WNBA because there is some overlap. Uh, but, you know, uh, my I'm, my antenna is always up for something like that. I've always had a, a great desire to do it. I really appreciate and respect, you know, basketball around the world. I think I would learn a lot by doing it as well. And uh, so I'm always open to that. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, Brian, was um, I've heard I've heard a few people um, express some concerns about the uh, the depth in the USA backcourt, which in it, in itself sounds sounds kind of ludicrous because obviously it's gold, gold, gold most of the time. But obviously, you know, we're going to reach quite a watershed next year when the likes of uh, Tarazi and Bird, I assume, step down. Um, obviously, there's some good young players coming up, but is that something that you see? I mean, obviously, there's a wealth of talent, but do you think there's kind of... Maybe it's linked to that thing about everybody wants to be a small forward, everyone wants to be athletic, what we said before, but do you think do you think there is concerns there in the backcourt? You know, uh, I obviously know Sue real well. I've worked with her for seven years in Seattle, and, mm -hmm. you know, I talk with her on occasion, and I know Diana. I was an assistant in Phoenix when we drafted Diana. So those two are, you know, spectacular players and people. And uh, as long as they can stay healthy and stay in shape, they're always going to be two of the top players in the world. You know, and especially with Sue, um, you know, her intangibles that she brings to the game um, are unmatched. You know, she, when she's on the court, her team just plays better. Better. And, uh, you know, if you even saw her play two years ago in the in the playoffs, you know, she was at the top of her game. Now, as you get older, you know, obviously health, you have to really pay attention to your health and your conditioning and your fitness. And so as long as they uh, can stay fit and healthy, then I think that they will play. I Sue's even told me that, as, you know, as long as she feels like she wants can play and wants to she still loves the game she's going to play so i don't know when that's going to end uh diana's probably been hampered with a few more injuries off and on here the last couple of years and maybe sue has even though sue set out last year okay. um but paul to answer your question um i think in the in the states there's always i don't think they'll be affected by it as long as those two are playing now once those two retire at the guard positions you know, I think that they're at some point going to have to start, you know, bringing along some of the younger players. How they do that, I don't know. Um, but I do know that there's dialogue about that within many circles here, in many basketball circles here in the United States, including USA Basketball. Coach, you were a point guard. You used to play the point guard position. I was. Is, yep. is Sue Bird the best point guard you ever had, you ever coached? Oh, there's no question. You know, there's no question. And honestly, to answer your question, Talia, um, that was that hurt us in, in Seattle because we were so used to Sue 
that when, whenever we'd go out and evaluate other point guards, we were always comparing them to Sue, and that wasn't fair. And it, yeah. And, and we probably passed on some good players just because they weren't up to her standards. Wow. So there's a there's sort of a a positive having her on your team, but then when you're always comparing the people that you evaluate to be potential members of your team to her, it's oh. not really fair. So. To answer your question, she's not only one of the best I've been around, she's one of the best men or women that's ever played that position. Coach, you've had the opportunity to, to kind of coach some of the uh, the greats or public figures in, in the WNBA and just North American basketball in general. Sue Bird, you mentioned NECA, Candace Parker, of course, uh, uh, you know, you know, Sky Diggins as well. Um, when you when you look at it and, and the way that they've not only evolved on the court but off the court, how they've become uh, such you know outspoken uh, advocates for just equality around the world. Uh, from your perspective, you know how much further can uh, you know, some of these athletes that are coming up after them take this uh, this baton that they kind of ran forward with? Well, I think they, the the nice thing that they have right now is they have a platform, and when you have a platform and you're more visible, people are going to pay more attention. So. When you have great communicator uh, like a Sue, um, Tamika Catchings, the Tarasis, you know, people like that, that that are on that platform, they and the Yaguma case, obviously NECA, people are going to stop and listen uh, and take very seriously what they're saying. So I think that those people being advocates of the growth of the game uh, even when they're done playing, is going to be a huge benefit to the sport of women's basketball. But I think the platform is the key. And the more visibility our league gets, the more visibility they get, and then that platform becomes bigger and higher. Coach, why women's basketball? You've been in basketball your whole life. You come from you know, a basketball it was sort family. Of, why? The moment you said, I'm going to coach women's. Yeah, I just, it was, I, I don't want to say by accident, it was... Uh, so I was on the men's side back in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. I was coaching at a small college in Oklahoma, and the uh, women's coach retired. And so the athletic director just came to me and asked me if I would um, have interest in coaching the women's team. And I thought about it, and I decided that uh, I thought I would give it a try and like anything else, but probably like you guys too, you you have a passion for the game, and mm -hmm. you're competitive, and so you you know you build your network, and it just goes from there. Every time I, I talk to coaches, most of the time that I that I talk to coaches that coach women's basketball, they always most of the time they always tells me the same: girls are so brilliant and disciplined. I cannot see myself coaching boys. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what's your point of view with that. I, I have to agree. I've, I've enjoyed my experiences, and um, been the, the people I've coached have been very coachable, and I've had the luxury and feel very fortunate to have coached, you know, some of the best in the world, even going back to the Valerie Stills and the Andrea Lloyds that played in Italy mm -hmm. back in the, in the uh early, late early 90s and late 80s. You know, those mm -hmm. they, uh, they were great players. And uh, coaching them on the Columbus Quest all the way through to the Sioux Birds and the Enrique Goombawales now. So there's yeah. been a wide range of great players that I've had the good fortune of working with. You mentioned the Columbus Quest. For, for some of those who are listening right now, they probably have no idea uh, about the ABL. I mentioned it off the top. You won. You were able to win two championships there. You were also the ABL Coach of the Year, 97. But the, the league obviously didn't last and and. Uh, kind of folded before uh, it really got going there. But what was what some of your memories about coaching in the ABL and uh, and 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 what was good about it uh, at the time that it was uh, it was actually fully functioning? What was good about it were the players were uh, getting paid extremely well, and uh, you know we were playing in the winter time, which is sort of the traditional basketball season. Uh, it the WNBA and the ABL were both sort of born off the 99, 1996 Olympic team 
that won the gold medal in Atlanta, and nine of those 12 players came and played in the ABL initially. So it was a great league, um, very competitive. We played 40-some games a season, and, uh, you know, some of the greats, some of the older great players played in that league. And then uh, it probably didn't last just because, you know, it, the, all the intentions were great, but the business plan at the time probably wasn't the best, and oh. it just couldn't function financially. So uh, the ABL folded, and uh, the players and some of the coaches then were absorbed by the WNBA. Last last one for me before we uh, before we let you get out of here. I, I, I got to ask the obligatory Canadian question since I am the only question Canadian here on the uh, podcast. <laughs> I got to say my main belief in. Uh, there was a rumor. Uh, that there was to be played and going to be a WNBA played this year uh, in, in Canada. Um, now, again, that's just a rumor. Uh, that there was nothing confirmed. But do you see, if the game's going to expand, if the WNBA is going to expand, do you see a chance for a team to be up in Canada uh, full-time? Yeah, Brian, Brian, oh, sorry, Brian, yeah. Brian, before you answer, is that your dog in the background? Yeah, I've so, got two dogs, and we're all in a self-quarantine, so I try, yeah, to, no, I try no. to hide in the back bedroom so I <laughs> yeah, can get distracted, but it still doesn't work. Well, can I, can I just say that they've been very well behaved, but when they heard somebody say they were Canadian, they started going crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. not, not, not big Canadian fans. They're not, they're not hockey people. Those dogs aren't hockey people. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I think Toronto would be a great location uh, for a WNBA team. I've been up in that city. Uh, you know, they, the, the NBA team's strong now. It's a great metropolitan city, uh, very similar to New York. Um, you know, I don't live very far from there. I'm in Ohio right now, so I'm, you know, five-hour drive from Toronto. Um, but I, I have not heard about a game playing up there, unless I do think there was an exhibition game going to be played there, if, if I remember right. But now... With things being changed, I don't know uh, if that's going to take place. But I think it was going to be New York versus Indiana with uh, a Chanwa and Nurse going back up there and playing uh, somewhere. I think maybe in Ottawa. I'm not for sure. Yeah, you, you heard the same. You heard the same rumors, uh, rumors as I've heard, um, which you know again it weren't confirmed. I don't think it, with all everything that's happening now, probably probably wouldn't. Uh, it wouldn't be wouldn't pull, be pulled off uh, at this point. But um, that being said, it, it, Toronto and, and do you see there is there room for just the one team or maybe multiple teams up in Canada? Vancouver obviously had a team at one point. Is it maybe getting back into basketball on the women's side an option? I think I think definitely Toronto. Um, I've been to Vancouver. They hosted a nice tournament there about uh, eighteen months ago. Uh, college tournament that I went to. Uh, but for sure, Toronto, just because of their location and, you know, their, uh, just the accessibility to get in and out of there. And uh, I think there's a big chance. Now, whether it's going to happen or not, I don't know. I, you're, you're asking my opinion. I think it would be a great place. Awesome, Coach. We, Coach, we really appreciate your time. Um, if, you, if you ever want to break any news ahead of the draft about who you're <laughs> going to select, uh, help this podcast go a little bit viral, please feel free to give us a call, and we will definitely get that information out there to everybody that needs to hear it. We see if you ever come over the UK, then uh, fish and chips are on me. I, I want to do it. I definitely want to do it. Right. I'd like to get back up to, to Blackpool. We play our games in Bolton. In so Bolton, we yeah. Games yeah, we did. We, we played there. Well, you know, you know, my son. Uh, obviously, he did the right thing. He's chosen Newcastle United to support in the the football or the soccer, what you guys call it. And uh, he's actually his second team's actually Bolton, and he's got a Bolton shirt as well. So oh, there awesome. you go. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. but re- really, really appreciate it, Coach. Thank you very much. Well, I want to thank you guys for following the game and promoting the game and pushing a game and helping grow the game. You get everybody's sort of doing their little part here to make it bigger and better. And I just want to thank you. Thanks to uh, head coach Brian Agler for stopping by and giving us some time. Was able to give us some great perspective, guys. Uh, our, our guest pool. I don't know. The bar's set high now. I don't know. Uh, I don't know where we go next. 
Yeah, I think I think us three could be replaced in time, so we'll have to be careful. We're setting ourselves up for failure. We keep having the uh, top of the line guests uh, on the program. Um, there is there is news to talk about, though. Even though there's no basketball being played, there is plenty of news to talk about, and we touched on it with with Coach Agler, and that's mainly uh, a little bit around the calendar of FIBA that was released uh, about a week ago now. Um, and first things first. Your thoughts, your guys' thoughts on the EuroLeague and the Euro Cup, uh, the 2020 being played in October. I mean, for us here in North America, that's pretty much the winner. Uh, and, and normally, you know, that's the offseason for, for a lot of these, a little bit of an offseason that they get for a lot of these women that are playing year-round. Uh-huh. Now they're truly playing year-round. Yeah. I mean, if, if you don't mind me just picking up on this first, I mean few quick thoughts. Um, firstly, I think before any of us say anything about this, I think it's quite clear that, uh, as I've always said with uh, coronavirus, I don't think there is any right or wrong answers, uh, black uh-huh. and white, because, I mean, it's an unprecedented situation. I think when I heard the news that there would be a EuroLeague women or Euro Cup women final eight in October, I think I tweeted, which was a fair comment, that it's quite difficult to get my head around at this point. And that's, uh-huh. that's quite simple, and that's, be, well, there's a few different reasons, but firstly, um, that you might have players playing who didn't play during the regular season um, just gone because they've changed. Um, obviously, you, you may have teams who will compete in October um, and not even enter or have the budget to enter the following season, which could be, I don't know, a week or two after. Um, you may also have some clubs who hit real financial difficulties um, because of the coronavirus if they do rely on a on a corporate sponsor uh, who may put money uh-huh. in or actually even for the first time a, a municipality or a local government who may contribute to the playing budget so i think there's a lot of questions um obviously the other option was just ending the season and kind of not having it but you know i, I do understand this the rationale in terms of you know, clubs like uh, Katarimberg might have sp- um, spent X million, so they deserve, you know, a return, a title um, from that perspective. So I think it's a very, very, very um, difficult situation. And that's not me sitting on the fence about right or wrong answers. I just think it's so unique. It's it's just, you know, it's so difficult. But I think with players' contracts, things like this, it's going to be... Um, it's going to be a bit of a minefield to have to try and kind of navigate across. Yeah, Paul says it all. I don't think I have anything to add. There's no runner right here. They got to do what they got to do. And that's the the day, the month that they have and that it's available. It's, you know, hopefully we have a better 2021. But as 2020, whatever happens, happens. Yeah, I mean, from a, from a player perspective, Natalia, what do, you, what do you think some of the players are, are, are going through? Because obviously... They're competitive. You talk about my country here in Puerto Rico. It doesn't don't affect any of them because they don't play over there. And only Jennifer is over there right now. But, um, you know, it, it, they will be fine. And, but I do understand what Paul is saying about uh, the financial problems that they will face. It will be a whole different ballgame now. Uh, those contracts are probably going to go down by a lot. And, and that's not going to be good because everything that they work so hard to gain Maybe because of this whole situation, it will go, you know, back down. Because if it's happening in the NBA, imagine what it would happen in in the EuroLeague. Is there a glass half full kind of scenario for you guys at all in, in terms of, you know, sports being taken away from all of us as sports fans? Not just basketball, but sports across the board. Where when it does eventually come back, we will be so sports crazy as a fan base that we'll consume and probably spend more of our dollars uh, on sports because we just, just for at least for that little bump to have it back. Uh, it's kind of like when you, when, you know, Christmas comes around, you, you spend a lot more money than you would a lot, you know, throughout the entire year, knowing that every year Christmas is coming, you, you blow up the budget. And then after that, you kind of sit back and say, all right, we'll go back to normal. Will, will sports coming back be a Christmas moment? For, for even women's basketball, where you see some of that spillover of the extra spending and people just, the eyeballs, because they just haven't had sport in so long that everyone's going to consume everything. Well, I, I just want to take it just quickly outside of women's basketball, which I know we don't tend to do very often because I like to keep on point. You're breaking the cardinals. Well, well I, I am, but 
I think in these it's unique times, so just just allow me that uh, that pleasure for one moment. I do, I do think I do think though that the sport at the highest level, and you know, I don't want to say you know say NBA, Premier League soccer in the UK, all of those guys, you know, whether it's American football or whatever, they have to be very very careful that they don't. I think milk the situation and the frenzy too much. Because I think we've seen such a varied kind of response from the players themselves. Some have been great, taken pay cuts. Some have, you know, contributed to charities. Some have done some great work, and others haven't budged. Um, and I just think that as sports fans, it's it is like coming out of cold turkey, and it's you do want to go crazy and watch as much as you can, and that's brilliant. That that is glass half full. But I just think the glass half empty is that the consumer um, uh -huh. ends up paying money that a lot of people won't have um and that's going on you know on agents fees and going on players sky high salaries and and all of these things and what really really worries me is the community center down the end of the street doesn't matter what country it's in you know the youth club um uh -huh. if, if they if they are boarded up because the guys went out of business and they couldn't afford to fix the rings um, to me, it doesn't matter what's happening at the top. It's the full picture. Um, and what we don't want is, is, is girls who will play basketball just in this frenzy, just get used to just clicking online and just watching the top level. You know, we need people playing the sport. We need people engaging at all levels. And I just hope that what's happened, the legacy is not that we get a generation who celebrate being able to watch things online and uh, can't go down to the local court. And I think that that is the fundamental thing that I'll be looking for in the next six to 12 months. Certainly in my local area, how many how many clubs survive and, and, and kind of what the participation figures are 12 months from now. Yeah, it's a very, very good point uh, yeah. in, in terms of, of how it's going to affect not just the top, but uh, as you said, the bottom. It's weird, I, you know, walking around here, we're in, uh, in where I am, Charlotte, North Carolina, there are, you know, empty basketball courts uh, around my neighborhood, and uh, even though we are, we're, we're kind of supposed to be in lockdown, so to speak. People have been playing. Uh, you know, guys have been guys and gals have been getting out there and, and hooping a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. So much so that the you know the the locals uh, authorities here have had to come through and, and put you know boards uh, planks on on the nets to stop people from playing uh, mm -hmm. and, and getting out there. So you know what they I, have to do in New York. They had to take their rings out of yeah. the basketboard so people won't, you know, stay at home and not go out and play. Yeah, so I hope that enthusiasm stays the same once we uh, once we get back to some sort of normalcy here uh, in life. Um, you know, and and I guess starting the season at you know at the beginning at, at you know twenty twenty one is uh, and for every league around the world, I think is going to face the same problem. Okay. I, I know everyone's kind of focused on how we end the season uh, that's been stopped, and and for a lot of you know, competitions around the world, they were just gearing up for the play playoffs or, or any sort of elimination tournament to close things out to crown a champion. But a lot of that truly, if we really want to get it done, a lot of that can happen in one or two months. Mm -hmm. The question is to me, uh, is really how is that going to affect next year? Because you're going to have a lot of wear and tear on everybody's bodies. Uh, and, and as you guys said, to be able to find the funds to ramp back up in that short amount of time, Okay. To, to pay these people and pay the venues and pay everything else, that's going to be tough. So I'm, I'm more interested to see how things turn around in 2021 and, and beyond, uh, including the fact that you've got to stop down for an Olympic Games as well. It's, that's going to be the tough part for me. And if you, if you, if you add another layer to that um, great point there, Colin, um, what the WNBA were hoping um, with the improved terms, which you know is great. I mean, nobody's going to argue with uh, our fine female bowlers getting paid more money. But if they feel really crushed physically, are they going to choose a million dollars at a Katrinburg, or are they going to choose a lot less um, in the WNBA? And you know, that's a that's a big big challenge. And actually, as an athlete who has kind of been. Um, brought up with the WNBA, best league in the world, etc., etc. They're going to have the absolute classic kind of conundrum to have to choose between, you know, untold riches. Um, and the other point is, what happens if in a Katerinburg? I mean, I'm only using them as an example because they're the richest club in the world. It could be China or wherever. What happens if they say to a player, "You're playing too much basketball. You can sign for two million for us, but you don't play anywhere else." What, what happens then? 
Yeah, that's that's the tough part, and I think that's where a lot of decisions are going to have to be made uh, at the very top level. We we could spend you know million years discussing just that topic alone, and I'm sure we will on this very podcast. But I want to move on and talk about the age group tournaments that uh, potentially could still happen when they're supposed to happen. Uh, as it sits right now, in August, we are supposed to have the U17 Women's Tournament. Um, I, I, I'm sorry, is that the that's the world? World Championship in in uh, in August. It's not just a regular tournament. It's a big deal, uh, and it still might happen. Like there still might be a chance. We haven't heard word yet whether or not it's not happening. So we have to assume that it's still happening. But how are teams going to be able to participate? The, the, I mean, this this is this is absolutely fascinating because I was I was talking to somebody else about this, and I think what they've done is quite fairly. It's kind of they've chosen a, what I would call a watershed date. So it's kind of like mid-August. So I think most people would agree June, July, the f- maybe the first part of August would be a no. Um, I think they know that they could probably get it done in September or October, but there's other complications of doing it late. So it's kind of like, you know, that is the kind of one kind of window where I think it's 50-50. But what really fascinates me with all of this is because it's under 17 women's basketball world cup you've got people coming from all different parts of the world and i mean it's not under 19s where the players are technically adults maybe at 18 you know you're going to have 16 year olds maybe some 15 year olds you know the very star players from those countries that haven't got a lot of depth and it'll be interesting for me um how the mentality of parents feeds into this you know, going going in some cases halfway around the world after there's been this this virus, um, and obviously how many players will be allowed to go by their parents? How the federations handle if some of their best players and um, the parents stop them from going? You know, you've got so many different nations with it being a global event. It's going to be fascinating that even if the event does go ahead, um, who goes? Uh, which countries are fully rostered up? Um, it's it's going to be fascinating from my point of view, and that's that's just off the court before a ball is thrown up. I honestly think that they should just go out and say that it's not happening in, in August. I mean, I, I if it was in the uh, as you said, Paul, if it was a senior tournament, maybe you know you you waited during it, kids. Yeah. Uh, I, I think you have to protect uh-huh. them and then the, the decision out of most parents' hands. Uh, because for a lot of the parents, they they probably won't have enough information. You know, uh-huh. A lot of these parents aren't doctors. You, you, you're asking them to say no to a child that's going to want to most for the most part is going to want to play uh, in in a, in a tournament, represent their country at the highest level. Who knows what that could mean for that kid's basketball career? I think yeah. you have to take that decision yeah. I mean, out of everyone's hands and, and 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 make it and either push the tournament to a later date or or reschedule it for next year. I mean, the ca- the caveat is that I think. Um quite understandably i think the middle of may so kind of in a month's time i think they're going to make an absolute final decision and i guess every day every week you know new things happen so you know this time that it could be called off kind of well in advance um and that 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 is what may well happen but uh yeah it's good fascinating times i think every day every week you know we just get new perspectives um, but for me, it goes back to the old thing that, you know, when it comes to anything coronavirus, I'm not sure there's any right or wrong answers. It's just people's opinions because it's never happened before. And that, that's for me, that's the top and bottom of this. Now it's time for the jaw dropper. All right, guys, now time for our jaw dropper. We can't get out of here without that. Uh, and since we had a great coach on the program, I thought it would be cool to ask you guys, who is the greatest coach of all time? That's such an easy question. It's such an easy question. Orange and white. Pat Summit, The queen. I'm not, gonna, I'm not really going to argue with that. But, I, but I'm going to give you two answers. On this side of the world, I, I'm going to go with Gene. Um, Oriyama. I mean, that's the, the side. Just all it does is win. Uh, Genesis, Dina, Genesis, Pat song. <laughs> <laughs> hang, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I smell a rat here, Colin. Are you? Are you? Are you? Are you just? You said that he would never ever come on this podcast because that we criticised too many UConn players. 
Are you just trying to claw back, claw back some sense of credibility in that organization? The guy wins. I mean, yeah. How many, how many championships? He, uh, 11 national championships. You know, um, tough to beat. That's tough to, he's a basketball Hall of Famer. Uh, that's tough to beat. And you, Paul, I want to, I want to hear you. I mean, for, from a European perspective, and, you know, I, I think sometimes when you say of, of all time, it's quite tough to kind of speak about people who are still relevant, people who are still current, people who are still in the middle of their careers. So, you know, I, I've got to say, I think uh, Mondello from Spain um, has got to be up there. I mean, if you if you look at what that of what Spain has achieved since he took the reins, I mean, okay, they had some some highs in the past. It is just a string of historical historical accomplishments. And then you throw in the fact that, you know, EuroLeague women as well with Avenida, first time they ever won it. I mean, it's it's pretty tough to to kind of get better than that in terms of, of the modern day, at least this side of the pond. Um, and obviously, he's a, he's, to me, he's a huge character, very different. Um, so you know whether whether he, whether he turns out to be the greatest, um, I don't know. But I think it's worth just throwing that name in the hat. Yeah, I, I thought I had two answers, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw one out at you guys, and I want want you guys to uh, to give me some some blowback if, you, if you're if you're not a fan of what I'm about to say. I, I really think uh, that because of the style that he plays uh, and how it could evolve the game. Tom Hobbes yeah. has a chance yeah. to be mentioned uh, amongst the greats when it's all said and done. He's just getting started. He still has a lot to do, uh, a lot of winning to do at the highest of levels. Uh, but I think if he does provide some of the results, I think he can change the game much the same way that uh, we see some of the you know coaches like Mike D'Antoni has changed the way the game is played in the NBA, uh, and 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 you're some of the European coaches. Uh, I've changed the way that uh, you know it, they, they've uh, kind of adapted. Uh, sorry, that European style has kind of been adapted across the world uh, in terms of not one-on-one basketball but team basketball. I think Tom Hovis can really create the style that, you know, if done right, uh, can have teams very successful at a high level. Yeah, I mean, I that, agree. Yeah, I mean. That. I think that if you if you're gonna if you're gonna rank um, if you're gonna rank how good coaches are and like I say potential, it's good to have mod- modern kind of relevant people in the conversation because there's still people who are on that journey. Um, whereas you know people who've concluded their careers, um, obviously it's it's a lot easier to judge. Look down the look down the kind of honors board of, of what they've achieved. But I think it's really exciting to have people out there who are on, on that journey and on that path towards potential greatness. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to argue with anybody. And uh, hopefully we can get Tom on the show and it's another another push for him to, to come on. And uh, I think he would be a really, really good guy to catch up with. And uh, maybe maybe Lucas Mandela would be... Maybe a little bit too difficult, but he's got good English now, so I'll. Uh, and he's actually he's actually coached in Japan, remember? So obviously there's a nice link there as well between him and Tom. So um, yeah, two two good guys. Yeah, and and and, and seeing as the basketball world will eventually converge upon Japan a year from now, about a year from now, uh, for the Olympics, so it would be cool to get their perspective on the growth of the game and what the Olympics might actually do, hosting the Olympics might actually do for. The explosion of the game uh, in in that country. So excited to do that. Excited to talk to very uh, very prominent basketball figures all around the world. And always excited to talk to you two guys. Uh, I feel like we don't get a chance to talk enough, especially mm-hmm. even in our group chat. So uh, appreciate hearing you guys' voices. I'm glad that you guys are safe during these times, and hopefully all you listeners out there are safe as well, and your friends and family are uh, are in good spirits and safe as we get through this uh, this trying time with some women's basketball. It's always good to talk. Thank you for listening to the Women's Basketball Worldwide Podcast.